So I, I think a lot of times elected officials think like, oh, my my voters are opposed to this. Um, but when you go back and you say like, hey, uh, medical cannabis, what do you think? Um, you know, you, you're actually going to get a very positive response from the far majority of, of voters. That's correct. Um, so I, I think it's important from an education and from a stigma standpoint for for folks to, to really understand that as well. Brian, welcome to uh, State House with Frank Santos. Uh, I uh, want to take a little bit of time to uh, let you talk a, a little bit about your role um, at Hawthorne um, and uh, a little bit about you know the connection that Hawthorne has with uh, Scott's Miracle Grow. I think everybody knows Scott's Miracle Grow is uh, the, you know a company that everybody uses in, uh, for their lawn and garden. And all kinds of uh, all kinds of products, uh, but probably most people don't know as much about Hawthorne. It'd be a good opportunity, maybe, to talk about your role in Hawthorne and then how those those two work together to start with. Yeah, absolutely, Frank, and thank you for having me on your show. Um, so, uh, Hawthorne Gardening Company, uh, wholly owned subsidiary of the Scotts Miracle Grow Company. Um, Hawthorne uh, has been focused on hydroponics. Uh, to start with, and and really indoor cultivation uh, um, supplies, and so we're the largest manufacturer of lighting, uh, nutrients, plant supplements, uh, growing media. You know, uh, which is really right uh, things you grow plants in. Um, you know, fibrous materials um, could be pots of soil, uh, things like that, depending on the type of operation you're running indoors. Uh, climate control commitment, uh, com- climate control equipment, uh, excuse me. Um, and so a lot of the goods we manufacture um, are for indoor cultivation. Some of them can be used outdoor, but when you're talking indoor lighting and you're talking, you know, climate control technologies, that's, that's all for controlled environment agriculture techniques. And really what's driven the expansion of the industry uh, in the U.S. Uh, over the last, you know, five to 10 years is cannabis legalization at the state level, both from a medical and an adult use perspective. Um, so while Hawthorne Gardening Company doesn't touch the plant, um, you know, we produce uh, equipment that cultivators will use in the cultivation of, of those products. Um, we also... Uh, have an international business and uh, these products can be used for the cultivation of, of vegetables or, or flowers too. And that's actually uh, a large part of the international business is the pro horticultural market as well. Uh, so that's the Hawthorne business, which is part of the Scott's Miracle Grow Company, which everybody usually recognizes. And uh, the comment I usually get is, oh, my grandmother uses that stuff. You know, my mother uses that stuff and I use that stuff. You know, my dad always fertilizes the lawn. So you know, everybody recognizes the Scott's Miracle Grow brands from, uh, you know, products around their home that they're using to take care of their indoor plants or their lawn and garden outside um, and uh, to protect their properties from pest control, fire ants or rodents or things like that. Oh, that's great. And, and so the uh, relationship with Hawthorne um, to the cannabis industry as it's as it's grown, of course, it's grown differently in different parts of the country. And, um, and so, uh, but I think probably it sounds like your relationship with, with 
with cultivation companies generally, I imagine is is where you do most of um, you have most of your partnerships uh, with these companies um, that are uh, growing anywhere in the U.S. Not necessarily specific to um, one state or another, but you have an idea of the different uh, challenges that they have, you know, throughout the country. Is, is that yeah. is okay? Yeah, tell tell me no, a little bit def- about that. Definitely. Um, you know, growers have challenges uh, all over the country, depending on the state they're operating in, right? Um, operations in California face different challenges from operations in Ohio versus operations in Florida. Um, and trying to run an, an indoor operation when you're in Florida and have high humidity uh, versus, you know, an Ohio winter uh, versus, uh, you know, dry and cold versus an Ohio summer, which, you know, could be more humid too. Um, and then California, which kind of has that kind of consistent climate, um, depending on where you are in the state. But yeah, growers face very different challenges depending on the states that they're operating in. So um, as manufacturers um, of equipment that's uh, used in cultivation, you know, we're, we're constantly talking to folks about how to improve that equipment, um, how to help them be more successful in their yields. Um, and also be more cost efficient too. Uh, so that, that's an important part of the business. Um, and then we have a lot of retail partners too. Um, you know, uh, being a, a publicly traded company, um, we don't sell directly to licensed cannabis companies. Uh, we operate through retail partners and um, certified commercial resellers too. So um, kind okay. of the, the the federal state disconnect and the law does create some complications, but um, it allows us uh, to continue to operate um, pretty successfully across the country with these partnerships. It's uh, you know, and that seems to be kind of the the, the common thread. I, I don't know uh, for our listeners and and uh, and and viewers. I think the one thing that the the disconnect um, of this of this whole issue is uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, you know, there's a federal um, the 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 cannabis itself or marijuana is um, is scheduled. Uh, still a Schedule One drug, and so it causes problems with interstate uh, commerce, and so that's why you have all these individual states having to create their own way of dealing with a, an issue that's growing, um, for lack of a better term, organically. Uh, but it really did, uh, you know, in 2015, Texas created a statute, um, and and this is a conservative legislature down here. I wasn't in, involved in it until. Uh, you know, I spoke with uh, I spoke with Hawthorne, and and Hawthorne was uh, getting very interested in in the state of Texas. And Texas is very very specific medical cannabis only. There is no recreational, and um, it's not likely like recreational is is uh, around the corner. And so, what Texas is trying to do is is make the best, most effective, safe, regulated medical program that they can in the country for patients, so that um, so that it's done properly so that patients can get access to a product, um, that, uh, you know, some of, uh, some of your, um, your partners are utilizing in their cultivation. And, um, and so I know that the, the, the sort of the thing they wrestle with here is, um, a little bit of, uh, the narrative about, about just cannabis alone, is it uh, is it are are we creating a system for uh, people to utilize cannabis that wouldn't otherwise use cannabis, 
or are we creating a system for patients that need it and that uh, we would rather it be into a regulated program and get a safe product versus go into the illicit market? And I think that's where we are. And that's what we've talked about before is 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 to shift patients out of that illicit market because they will go seek it out. There's only one provider in the state of Texas and it's very expensive. And if you can't get it there, you're going to go find it if you if you're uh, if you're suffering with the condition. Um, and 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 get it under the control of of the state. So um, I'd really like to know uh, when you look around the other states, uh, what kind of things have been um, beneficial in these kind of programs, and what kind of things have have been ineffective and and maybe even harmful to a program like we're trying to create in in Texas? Yeah. Um, great, great questions, Frank, and a great frame up to, I think, the the conversations we've seen in, in a lot of other states, right? Um, and, and I think some of the issues you're talking about goes back to uh, just even the stigma of cannabis, right? And, and that's another topic we can, we can talk about because um, it plays all into this. Um, if you really look at it, a policy issue and, you know, I'm probably more of a policy wonk than, than anything else. Um, I love kind of finding issues and then trying to fix things um, or figure out a way to make them work. Um, so when you take a step back and you kind of look at what's unfolded in the country, like you, you framed it up perfectly. It's this, this struggle of trying to set up medical programs that, that help patients, help people with um, chronic pain and, um, you know, nausea from, from their cancer treatments, um, you know, to PTSD and, and other conditions that, uh, that folks are struggling, struggling with debilitatingly, right? Um, major issues. And, um, you know, their only choices are uh, sometimes highly addictive and, and highly potent uh, drugs, right? And so, um, you know, what we've seen from the 37 states that have set up medical programs, um, all to, to varying degrees, right? Uh, some, some have been very, very loose. And I think um, have probably created some of the questions that, that some Texans are concerned about. They're just completely open markets that some people feel like are, you know, just really set up to allow people free access to cannabis for whatever reason, um, to very, very structured programs and limiting programs that uh, probably help uh, people with a few conditions and um, unfortunately leave too many patients on the sidelines and accessing that illicit market. Um, so, you know, when, when you look across and I think look at the policy of like what works and, or what has worked and what hasn't, uh, at the end of the day, if you're, if you're trying to answer the question of how do we get patients into a licensed market and get them products that uh, will, will help them with the condition that they're trying to alleviate um, and address, you know, um, the, the number one thing for that is, I think, the doctor-patient relationship. And I think what you've seen... Um, in states like Ohio and Florida is, um, you know, making sure that you have a pretty, uh, a pretty substantial list of, of conditions or just leaving it up to the doctor patient relationship where the doctor gives a recommendation for the use of cannabis for, you know, whatever condition, um, they think, uh, that it can be properly addressed and used for. Um, so I think that's, that's like number one is ensuring that, um, the conditions and the doctor recommendation 
um, uh, relationship is is working and allowing people to access the cannabis market. Like that's your that's your first gate into into a I think a functioning marketplace. Um, and then I think the other two pieces you get to is uh, uh, the form and and access, right? So the interesting thing about cannabis as opposed to uh, other products is it can come in many different forms, uh, right? Uh, smokable flour, um, you can get it uh, in, in a distillate uh, from a vaping device uh, to an edible or an oil or tincture, right? Um, and so it's unique in that aspect of it can come in many different forms. And um, depending on the form, the THC content can, can vary. Um, and depending on the patient's condition, they, they will need, um, you know, different uh, kind of THC can, uh, cannabinoid content um, to address that. So you want to make sure there's various forms. And I think if you look again at, uh, you know, other states uh, that have been doing this, been doing this for a while. Um, you know, uh, you can look at some of the states where ballot initiatives did this and in Arkansas and Oklahoma, uh, and, and some other states, or, you know, you can go to states where state legislatures have implemented it or other ballot initiatives, you know, like again, like Florida and Ohio, um, where they gave patients, uh, availability to different forms. So, uh, again, depending on their condition, uh, they could find the appropriate product. And, and that's important too, because, you know, from the first step, right, like going back to your access standpoint, getting somebody into the market is, is good. Um, if they don't have the right product content or the right forms, again, they're going to go back to the illicit market, right? Um, so, uh, you know, making sure that they can get into that marketplace is important. And the last piece is access, Right. Um, we've seen programs that have come online and uh, haven't provided enough access. And by access, I mean dispensaries where they can go pick up product. And that's a challenge that I think a lot of Texas patients even deal with today. Right. Like you're saying, there's, there's really one operational provider. Right. Right. Um, somebody is not going to drive six hours to go get product uh, that they need, uh, especially if they are. Uh, uh, somebody with a disability, right, or a medical condition, um, it, it's very challenging for them uh, at times um, to to actually go out and, and get their uh, get their their medicines, right, even on a daily basis. So, um, depending on the condition uh, that they're using it for, so you know, I think access is important too, and ensuring that you have uh, dispensaries or or access points. Uh, to pick up and and get product for patients uh, in a reasonably close um, uh, proximity to where they're living. So, again, I think if you go look Ohio, Florida, um, you know, you go look at uh, you know Montana or um, you know Colorado, uh, who did this very early on, um, places that had dispensaries um, on a population basis. Uh, that were accessible, you saw uh, more more patients involved in the programs, you know. Uh, and so I think those are some successful elements to medical cannabis programs that can put guardrails in place uh, for those that are concerned with, hey, you know, we're not looking to create an adult use program, uh, but ensure that the patients who really need the access are getting the access. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's great. And that's, that's great information, Brian. You know, the, the, what we found um when we started to to work on this issue here is 
a lot of uh, legislators, and, and and I understand. I've been doing this uh, for almost thirty years, and um, and the one thing that uh, is is real important for people to understand is that uh, you know these legislators, whoever they are, wherever they are, um, when they take a vote, they have to be able to defend it back in their district, and so education about things like you and I are talking about are, are so critically important so that you can, um, you know, you can wipe away some of uh, what is really just sort of rumor, innuendo, you know, just narrative that's been created over the years and get down to really the important piece of what we're trying to accomplish here. And I think you, one of the things that you mentioned when you were talking about different forms, um, you know, one of our really good friends, Chase Bearden, who is uh who was in, who was on the podcast the other day, you know, he's a perfect example. You know, here's a guy, young guy, um, you know, injured himself in a, um, um, in a athletic accident. He was a gymnast and broke his neck. Now he's a quadriplegic, but probably one of the most active guys you'll ever see. You know, he does everything and a very inspirational guy, but, um, but been living with chronic pain. You know, his body, you know, it, it, it has, uh, you know, all, all kinds of, of of issues because he's been sitting in a chair for so long. He's talked about that on the podcast. And, um, you know, one of the problems with the current uh, makeup of our the program, and I know that the DPS is, is actually doing everything that they possibly can and um, to help patients. But I think one of the things that'd be nice for the legislature to look at is a different forms for people to uh, to get access to their product. And in the case of someone like Chase, you know, uh, in order for, and, and again, also the other thing is that uh, the THC level is very, very low in Texas. Yeah. It's 1%. It got changed. It got moved up a little bit last session, but um, there was, there was some issues with that. I'll talk about that in a second. And I think some of the issues that were created last session, you know, they bleed over and make it more difficult to, to really create a program when you, when you have those issues that, uh, that make legislators, uh, policymakers and regulators nervous. But for, for Chase, um, the only way he can get relief um, other than opioids, and he doesn't want to take opioids, he got himself off of opioids. A 10, he was taking them for 10 years is what his doctor was prescribing, is to take the very um, low THC that we have in Texas. Well, that means, and we only have uh, very few ways that you can it can be delivered, and in his case, um, he because of his condition has to take the the tincture, uh, the oils. But the problem is he has to take a lot of the oil just to get enough to get to a level that actually yeah. helps him. And so, one of the things that we're going to we're, we're talking about this session is, um, as as much as it it it, it does uh, give people you know. It, it sets them back a little bit when you talk about uh, the distillate, like you talked about in, in, a, in a vaping pen, and that has its own issues surrounding it, um, uh, or the smokable flower. It 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 also just brings up all those same things that, that people think about. Now, you have to, you know, we hope that what a policymaker will look at is that we're not talking about creating an adult use program for these, for these products. This is strictly, you know... Uh, prescribed in quotes, air quotes, by the physician to that particular patient. So uh, I think you really nailed it when you talked about all those issues. It's, it's, it's critical to, to educate them on this stuff. 
Yeah, and Frank, I think the visualization to the example you were laying out with Chase is something right we've we've heard in in other states that that we've been to, right? So, so um, you know, just to use an example, right, having a one percent limit, right, that that could mean that the patient now has to go and get a one gallon container of um, let's say, uh, you know. Um, uh, the form, right? Let's say it's a liquid form. So they'd have, they'd have to get a one gallon container to get the appropriate amount of THC that they need, uh, to alleviate their symptoms or, uh, or their condition. Right. Um, so the state has kind of created this, this cap, this limit, because they think they're actually helping, uh, in some way. Whereas, um, now, you know, what are the side effects to that drinking that one gallon container of, of oil, right? That is not pure THC oil, oil, right? It's only 1%. It's a carrier oil. So, you know, that could be causing just, you know, digestive issues or, or other things not associated with the THC, but from the other substances they have to drink. Whereas you could let them actually take, you know, two teaspoons, right? Or two, sorry, two tablespoons, um, or, uh, or a cup, um, and it would be a higher percentage of THC in that in that smaller um, uh, container, yeah. um, but a much better health experience for yeah. the patient, right? Because you're not right. giving them all those additional substances uh, to dilute the THC down. And so sometimes in the policy, what we've seen is kind of we the, the policymakers create these kind of fictional guardrails. Uh, that unfortunately have uh, created, um, it makes them feel better, like they're protecting the patients. But at the end of the day, when you go talk to patients, they tell you, no, you're, you're, you're not helping right now. And so, yeah. you know, I think that's where, like, when you talk about education, that's where a ton of education can go on. And if, if people just pause and stop and Talk to the folks that uh, at these disability advocacy groups, right? Go talk to veterans advocacy groups that that are seriously right. We're, we're talking like the American Legion has come out with a resolution in support of medical cannabis, right? You're, a couple years ago, um, if you go talk to the patients that that right advocated with these groups, you'll you, you get a better understanding of what the real world implications are. And I think we need more more policymakers to stop talk to them and then go, Oh, okay. Like then how do we, how do we improve our program? Cause that's really what it's about at the end of the day is how do we improve that patient and, and provide them the care and support they need? Yeah, correct. You need to have uh, the doctors on board. Um, there needs to be, you know, some protections for the doctors because I think that the doctors, um, and my, my, my brother's a, a physician and, and my, my, my father's a dentist and I know that they, they worry uh, outside of cannabis. Um, neither one of them, you know, or prescribe it because they just don't have those kind of patients, but they worry about their license at every, it, it just prescribing anything because, you know, that that's a, it, it is a worry. I mean, that's their, that's their livelihood. So, so I, I hope, and, and we're, we're, we're trying to come up with some language and we want to work with the medical association to come up with some language to help protect those doctors that do have patients so that they aren't, you know, brought up on uh, before the board and that sort of thing. And um, I think all those little pieces are what make a really good program. And I think you also said it best is just talk to 
the people that actually have the condition. It's it's easy if you don't and you don't need it to you know, push it away and say it's a bad thing. Um, I think you need to talk to people that actually have those conditions. Yeah. And one other thing you you had said, what I think is important too, about, um, you know, elected officials uh, having to go back to their districts to, yeah. right, explain this. Um, I think one thing that gets lost too is if you look at the polling on this, right, and, and Texas has had polling on this, the vast majority of voters and we're not even just talking democratic voters we're talking republican voters support increasing access to medicinal cannabis so i I think a lot of times elected officials think like oh my my voters are opposed to this um but when you go back and you say like hey uh, medical cannabis what do you think um you know you you're actually going to get a very positive response from the far majority of of voters that's correct um so I, I think it's important from an education and from a stigma standpoint for for folks to to really understand that as well. The entire, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, the entire mindset of the country um, and and in individual states specifically in Texas being one of them based on the polling that I've seen indicates that, you know, voters are comfortable and OK with this and they actually want to see their politicians do more on this. Well, and I, and I think, and I don't want to, I don't want to misquote the the polling. I know which polling you're talking about, and it was, um, it was done by uh, Mike Basile. So it was a, a really good poll, and it was done for uh, Republican primary voters. And I think what's important to note about the polling is that, um, like everything else, people are are, are going to say, oh, well, it depends on how you word it, and and so forth, and they're going to, you know, they're going to say yes, you know. But if you look at the actual polling, and it, it, and they, there's very specific questions asked. If they would agree with expanding the program, if the physician said that a particular condition should be covered, and if a a physician said that it should be um, a higher percentage of THC, I think in this poll it said 5% as a base, um, because I think that was in the bill last session before they changed it to one, back to one. And you know, you're talking 70, 80% are like, of course, if the doctor says so, and they think that's what the patient needs, then um, yes, we're, we're, we're in favor of it. And I think that would be because most people have somebody in their family that's probably suffered from some condition that they don't want to be treated with uh, opioids. And, and frankly, that's the, that's the big boogeyman out there is, um, you know, people without any other option or alternative, that's what comes up for a lot of these conditions is opioids, even PTSD. It's just, it's, it's not a panacea, the opioids and neither is cannabis and nobody's saying that they are, but I think you just, uh, you need to give every, you need to give those patients every, you know, option they, they can to get better. Uh, and that's, that's what it's all about. Not, they're not trying, nobody here, nobody, these patients are, 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 um, like well, I shouldn't say nobody cause that's, that's, that's too, uh, too stark, but I would say by, Far ninety nine percent of these patients are not trying to get high. Now I'll say one hundred percent. These patients that I have, haven't met a patient yet, they're not trying to get high. They're trying to get well. You know, they they're trying to get back healthy and they're a bit productive, and um, and and not be uh, you know strung out by an opioid. Yeah, no, I w- I would agree with that assessment. Yeah, and and you know, and I think one thing that's that's real encouraging is I know that Hawthorne and Scotts have been at the forefront of uh, of really helping to uh, push the education part of this. And I know that that 
that uh, that Hawthorne's a big supporter of the Texas Patients First Foundation, which is an organization built specifically to educate on this issue. And um, you know, we want to thank you for that because that's it's going to be a major piece of trying to you know help build this program. So it's um you know something I think that will help the the program grow as far as conditions, you know, the THC level, hopefully different types and different forms of of product. Uh, more providers, uh, not too many. Um, actually, let me ask you that question about the number of of providers, because I know that uh, a lot of people use examples like Oklahoma as a example of what not to do uh, when it comes to providers, because they've just opened the door. Yeah, um, you know, Oklahoma's got gotten a lot of attention lately, and I think um, you know uh, you see a marketplace that. Uh, uh, basically it was super low cost, a couple hundred dollars. Um, they had to give you a license. Um, so it just allowed for the proliferation of, uh, you know, the, the marketplace. Um, and you, you just saw the marketplace get flooded with operators who, uh, listen, uh, honestly, some of them were fly by night, some of them, uh, right. Uh, um, uh, had, probably criminal connections at the end of the day, and they were just looking for cover. Um, I think Oklahoma legislature has done a great job of, of responding to that and, and putting enforcement in place so to, really that to back address those issues. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think that's important in any program, right? Um, you know, you could talk about any type of licensing program in a state. It's only going to work as well as, um, right, your implementation and, and your enforcement of it. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, that, that saw, saw a lot of its, its own challenges just because it was a completely free market sign up and you can be a part of it. Um, I, I think there's a balance to that, right? Um, you know, uh, we live in America, capitalist society, right? Um, but, uh, but you, you, you know, you want markets to, to function properly. Um, you do need some guardrails around it. So, again, I yeah. think if you look to... Um, you know, a place like Ohio, where uh, you have about 300,000 patients, um, you know, they have uh, a licensing system with, I think, 23 level one operators, 14 level two operators. Um, you know, you have about 72 dispensaries throughout the state to service the, the population. Um, in Florida, you're talking about you know, uh, 700,000 patients, um, larger, uh, you know, much larger dispensary base there right. uh, throughout the state. Um, and I think that's important for, for states to look at, you know, um, it's a balance. You don't have to go give out a million licenses, but giving out five to 10, um, also doesn't provide, you know, a market and access that, uh, that I think is good for, for patients or the marketplace. So, um, you know, I think states, uh, you know, need to look at that and go, okay, how do we, how do we make sure we give enough operators uh, to service the patient population uh, to geographically, um, right, service the, the population as well? Um, and, uh, you know, probably a state like Texas, you can, um, you can go with, uh, you know, anywhere between probably 20 to 50 operators and, and there'll be hundreds of dispensaries around the state. Right. Um, you know, we've seen states do vertical operations where 
And that's how Texas is set up right now, right? Like you, you do cultivation, you do processing, you do uh, the sale of your own product in those stores. Um, you know, and uh, we've seen some states tier the system. So you have operators who are cultivating and processing and then other people that are doing dispensing. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're able to, um, you know, build out a, a cultivation and processing marketplace, uh, that supplies a, a larger dispensary population. And, and, you know, people are just operating retail outlets at the end of the day. Um, but the important aspect of that is, um, it's a balance. It's looking at your patient population that, that you should be servicing. Um, and how many dispensaries do you need to service that? And, and really how much canopy, um, how much yield of, of product, uh, do you need to service that population at the end of the day, based on the different forms they're going to use? And really, you know, there's, there's economic folks that can do that. And, you know, you're really starting from scratch in Texas. So, uh, I don't think you have any fear of ending up with an Oklahoma type model. I think you're, you know, you're on the path to, you know, an Ohio or Florida type model. Um, that has a, an appropriate balance to it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the last uh, couple of uh, Department of Public Safety, uh, uh, Public Safety Commission meetings where they actually discussed exactly what you were talking about, um, the uh, they really did a, a good job of trying to extrapolate based on our current population of patients that are in the program and and, and the conditions, what that will look like you know, one, two, five years from now. And uh, it's pretty interesting because it didn't, they, they, and they mentioned this and they did a really good job of the presentation, the, the, the DPS, uh, the department that actually um, uh, manages this program, runs this program, um, that it doesn't take into consideration any new conditions that could come in in this session, but you're still looking at, you know, just a couple of years out, you're looking at going from, where we're at is around 20,000 patients to, uh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 150 to almost 200,000 patients. And then over five years, if you extrapolate those numbers out, it could, it could grow in significantly, you know, uh, you know, two, three X. And so I think the way they're, um, uh, they're trying to determine how many licenses is based upon that number. Exactly. Like you said, is, can you service that population? Is that, is there going to be enough product produced so that it's um, it's it's uh, priced effectively so that you know patients on a fixed income or or disabled patients can actually afford it and and then also um, I think they're going to be adding um, some rules on remote storage so that you can have more of those dispensaries you know actually keep that product outside of their their main cultivation center which is what happens now and you have to travel it you have to you know, send it out in trucks. It's kind of funny as you're framing up the marketplace and we're having this discussion, I'm like thinking about what the Texas market is today. And it's ironic because I'd say, um, you know, the way Texas is operating its program, it's, it's operating it, you know, in a very structured kind of stifling way. That's similar and more actually more surprisingly to New York, New York really did not run a functional, medical cannabis operation. Uh, they, they today have about 100, 125,000 patients um, registered. Um, and and that's, that's decreased actually over the last nine months. Um, but you, you would think that given New York and the way that they operate, and they only had, they have 10 medical operators. So really highly restrictive, um, limited conditions, limited forms, 
And uh, that's that's really limited the patient engagement. A state like New York should have uh, hundreds of thousands uh, of patients at the end of the day. And you look at what a Florida and Ohio has done, um, really figuring out that balance. And, and there's I keep throwing out Florida and Ohio, but they're, oh, you know, they're pretty straightforward medical yeah. programs. Right. That's why they're they're easy to point to, um, as opposed to other states that have you know both medical and adult use type programs. Correct. And it's yeah. kind of hard to nuance out, but you know, Florida's got 700,000 patients, you know, oh, mm. like I said, you know, Ohio has, uh, what did I say? Uh, 300,000 300, patients. Yeah. And, you know, look at the size of, of Texas. There is clearly a much larger patient population uh, that is not being served and can be served. And, um, you know, do you want to be a New York or, or do you want to be a, a, a successful program at the end of the day? Well, I think that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of a great takeaway, uh, for, for this, for this, uh, uh, podcast is, uh, well, what kind of program do we want to be? And I think that you can, from the discussion we had, there's, there's so many really great things that you could look at in, um, some places like Florida and Ohio that, um, the state could could really adopt and 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 they're not huge jumps um but they they are uh, programmatic uh effective changes that would help um people that and I, and I think one of the big problems is you know you got most people 85% of the population lives you know in in the center part of sort of the center part of Texas but you have you have a lot of people living on the edges and so anytime you're dealing with anything healthcare you know, it's, it is access and it's figuring out how you can, you can do that effectively. So, um, so I just want, you know, Brian, thank you so much for being on the, on the podcast today. Yeah. I think you gave uh, some incredible information. People are going to be really excited to hear about some of these things and hopefully they'll, you'll respond back with questions and maybe we can bring you back another time to, to do another one of these. But, uh, um, again, thanks again for, for your time and thanks for Hawthorne's, you know, commitment to, uh, to tech, to the Texas program. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me on. And, um, you know, Texas patients, uh, first program, uh, you know, meeting chase and the, the team there just really impressive. And, um, when you see patients like that out there advocating for themselves, you know, we, we love to team up with folks like that, um. You know, that's what we've seen actually make a difference uh, when when talking to folks about uh, breaking the stigma of cannabis and and really helping people at the end of the day. Uh, so uh, we're looking forward to continue that partnership um, and anything uh, that we can do to help and educate people. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the medical benefits, but you know, like tangentially, they're, they're economic benefits too. Like you're creating jobs, you're creating, uh, depending on how the program's structured in some states, there, there is taxes, but that's more usually on the adult use side uh, that you get really tax revenue from. And at the end of the day, people you don't usually don't want to tax medical patients uh, on, on cannabis. But, you know, there are all these other tangential benefits besides at the end of the day, what's most important, what we're talking about is helping patients. So, um, just glad to have have met some great people and and want to try and be supportive to to help you know make a positive impact on the world. So uh, that's what we're going to continue to try and do here. And um, you know, thanks for having me on and and happy to discuss or answer any other questions and come back anytime you want, Craig. Thanks. That, that's great. Thanks, Brian, and we appreciate you and we appreciate Hawthorne uh, very much. And we'll be talking to you again soon. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of the State House podcast. Today's show is made possible through a generous donation from my friends at Air Wellness. 
Air Wellness is one of the most innovative and fastest growing vertically integrated U.S. multi-state cannabis operators. The company's mission is to drive positive impact for their patients, their customers, their employees, and the communities they serve. For more information, please visit airwellness.com. That's A-Y-R wellness.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. In addition, consider subscribing on Apple and Spotify, where you can leave us a five-star review. If you're not already following us on social media, you can find those links below in the show notes. As always, thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next time.